There is no growth in comfort and no comfort in growth. Business today typically values and promotes leaders for their subject expertise. Leaders who have command of the details and execute based on knowledge and experience are highly respected. However, to grow as a leader, you have to get out of your comfort zone. That means learning to lead without just being the expert. Learn to gain the trust and respect of a team that might know more than you do. Get comfortable with ambiguity and with not having all the information. Develop the skills and confidence to lead in a different way. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone, and I'm Wanda Wallace. Now, today we're going to be talking about influence. I happen to believe that influence is one of the most critical skills for leaders. In fact, just this week, I've been talking to a whole series of senior leaders about their biggest leadership challenge. And in every single case, at the end of the day, regardless of the seniority, it's how do you influence people to do what you think is needed to be done or to think the way you want them to think. So, you know, we often think that as a senior leader, you get to tell people, and it just doesn't work that way. Rarely do we have the luxury of being able to decide unilaterally. So influencing people to do it differently, to change, is essential to executing any great idea you have. Yet as human beings, we are terrible at influence. Unless, of course, you already agree with me, and in that case, it's very easy. So fundamentally, we need a better framework for understanding influence, and that's what we're going to talk about today. David Maxfield is my guest. David is a social scientist who's been working with senior executives for 30 years, 30-plus years, I should say. He's published three or co-authored three New York Times bestsellers. Um, There are four of them that I'm going to cite, Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, Influencer, and Change Anything. His articles have been published in all sorts of peer-reviewed journals and notable places, and including in MIT Sloan Management Review, where his article, How to Have Influence, was named the Change Management Article of the Year. Needless to say, he's talked with lots of different people, won lots of awards, Um, including the Motorola University's Distinguished Teaching Award, and we could go on and on about his accolades. David, welcome to the show. Welcome. If you just want to go on and on and on, I mean, cool. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to. There's quite a long list here that we could go through. I'll just repeat for people. There are four major bestsellers, many of which I cite regularly, Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, Influencer, and Change Anything, that's good enough in my book. Well, it's an so honor David, to be on your show. It's a pleasure to have you here. Absolutely. All right. So let's start at the top. You know, I just said it's a big, important skill. I think it is. I think it's hard to dictate what people should do. But why do you think we need influence? Well, because at the end of the day, every problem that we care about is going to require that somebody change their behavior. And often it's it's ourselves who need to change our behavior. I mean, you said at the top that, that, you know, a lot of us times we don't have authority and we don't have expertise. I'm going to argue that even when we do have authority, but we're the head honcho, we're the king, we're the president, we have a terrible time getting people to change their behavior. Think of the problems we face in the world, whether it's poverty or crime, education, or saving for retirement. Right? The economic competitiveness, all of these require people, ourselves and others, to change their behavior, and we're not very good at it. Okay. All right. 
So why aren't we very good at changing behavior? I mean, it seems simple. I can change my behavior. What's the problem? <laughs> well, can we change our behavior? Here's a quick uh, a, a stat that comes from Stanford Medical School. $40 billion is spent on diets annually just in the U.S. And 19 out of 20 people on those diets lose nothing but their money. So how good at changing behavior are we? Right? Here's, here's another sort of fun one. 90% of corporate initiatives miss their targets, meaning they miss their deadlines, they go over budget, they miss their specs. Now, this is data that comes from a group called the Standish Group, and they study large enterprise-wide IT projects. I'm guessing pretty much every one of your listeners has been at the losing end of some big IT project that failed to deliver on its specs. And when you think about it, these projects usually have support from the very top of the organization, giant budgets, people whose sole job is to make it work, and yet 9 out of 10 miss their targets. How good at influence are we? Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about um, a small startup company that I work with where the fundamental problem for them is not the technology that they're selling. I actually think they are best in class in the technology and ramping it up every day. It's convincing people who are their gatekeepers on this product to actually change how they do their job. And the biggest issue is getting people to change how they think about doing their work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that, so almost any initiative you can think of that you care about is going to sooner or later come down to that fundamental. How do we get people to change? That's what sparked our interest in, in developing a better model. Okay. All right. Now, when I hear most people talk about how do we get people to change, they talk about we go out with a really strong, compelling message, and we find the people that are the change agents that are really on board and really love our idea, and we get those resistors out of the organization as fast as we can. That sounds to me like yeah. I convince I get the willing on board and I ignore everybody else. Is that going to work, or is that a bad idea? Well, you know, it's it's a start. I think that all of us come in with sort of our own implicit, sort of naive theory about how to get people to change. Let me share sort of the, what mine used to be <laughs> and why I changed it. So I want to start with another of these uh, fun or not-so-fun factoids. So here's, here's a fact. This comes from, from Johns Hopkins Medical School. Two years after bypass surgery, 90% of patients are back to their old unhealthy behaviors. So I want to use this as an example of how my implicit theory of change wasn't, didn't have enough horsepower, right? So my implicit theory was the first thing you need to do if you're going to get people to change is get their attention, you know, a good wake-up call. Can you think of a better wake-up call than a heart attack followed by bypass surgery? Right? Let's assume we got their attention, right? <laughs> The second part of my little model was you've got to convince them that the costs of not changing are just too high, that there's really a strong motive to change. So how about this one? If you don't change, you're going to have a second heart attack that's likely to kill you. Think that would motivate somebody, right? And then the third element in my little model was to give people a clear roadmap to follow, like how to change their exercise, their diet, what medications to take, 
Well, Johns Hopkins does all of that, and yet the data stands, right? Two years after surgery, 90% of patients are back to their old behaviors. So obviously my little model wasn't, wasn't robust enough. All right. Well, it strikes me that that's a pretty commonly held model. So I'm just going to repeat, two years after bypass surgery, even when there's been a wake-up call, the costs of not changing are really clear, and we've got an exercise routine, diet routine to follow, very clear roadmap, 90% of patients are back to their old behaviors. So clearly, having the roadmap, having the wake-up call, knowing the costs are not adequate to get people to actually change. So what is it we need to make people change? Yeah, so... So it's an influence problem, and there turns out there's there's a relatively simple model, simple to understand, um, but it requires some effort. We'll say we apply this model to problems that we'll describe as profound, persistent, and resistant. Profound meaning it's worth some time and energy to invest in solving. Uh, persistent meaning it's often a problem that's been around quite a long time, and resistant meaning you've tried the easy stuff, and it, it maybe it got you a little traction, but it didn't get you where you wanted to go. So there's okay. three keys to look at. The first is have clear, measurable results, results that keep our feet to the fire. So have some a goal that's tangible, time-limited, that you're after, so you can measure your progress. Second, focus on two or three behaviors that drive that those results. If you want better results, you've got to change behaviors. But the mistake people make is they look at too many behaviors. They'll look at 10 or 12. It turns out it's more effective to look at one or two or two or three, the ones that drive the lion's share of the change. And then the third step is to throw everything plus the kitchen sink, what we call the six sources of influence, line them up all focused on those one or two or two or three behaviors. And that turns out to be the key. If you use all those sources of influence, our results show that you're 10 times more effective. 10 times more effective. Okay, so I'll just repeat. I want a measurable result, and I want something I can put tangible numbers on. I can track over time. It's simple enough to convey. We can all see it. We know where we're going. And presumably in that, we have to be showing some progress along the way. Yes. So measurable results. Yep. Behaviors and, that drive those results, and right. then sources of influence. Six sources of influence. Now, yep. what I find interesting, the two to three behaviors that are going to really drive the measurable results, I find it fascinating that you say that you're right. Every time I look at a major change initiative, we've got 10, 15, you know, things that we want you to do. I think about my own efforts, even. I often have 10, because 10 is a good number. Two to three, really. Keep it yeah, that simple. Yeah, it turns out that the, there's a cognitive error that humans make, and these are the kinds of errors that Tversky and Kahneman studied. Kahneman won the Nobel Prize studying this kind of thing, that as humans, we tend to think more is better, that more is always better. And if we analyze a problem to death and we find not just the two big drivers of change, but 27 drivers of change, we assume that's better because more is always better. But it turns out the old Pareto principle is correct, that 80 percent of the change is driven by twenty percent of the variables. So imagine you've got a really complicated phenomenon that's influenced by ten different factors. 
The old 80-20 rule, the Pareto principle, suggests you should focus on just two because any time you spend on the other eight is wasted time because you're spreading yourself too thin and not spending enough effort on those top two. And our research shows that that's true. Okay. Can you give me an example of where we would have 10 things and the two or three really become the major drivers? Sure. Let's take something we're all sort of familiar with. Um, and I'll go, I'll go back. When, when I was a graduate student, so I was working at Stanford back in the 70s, during the summers I worked at, at the medical school at the Stanford Heart Disease Prevention Clinic. And we were studying the people who lived in San Jose, California. So, you know, a couple million people who lived there. And we were trying to discriminate what were the differences between the healthy people and the less healthy people. Now, can you imagine 10 different differences? Yeah, sure. A lot of differences, right? (laughs) It turns out that you only need to look at three. And that drives health versus lack of health. Now, 1970s was a long time ago, and a bunch of your listeners don't live anywhere near San Jose, California. But let me guess that everyone listening to here knows what those three are. Right? It's exercise, eat right, and there's one that's a trick one because it's something the healthy people don't do, which is smoking. Those three, if, if that's all you did, that would dramatically improve the population health of almost any city in the world. Now, the the crucial question is, how many of us know more about living a healthy lifestyle than we practice? (laughs) Yeah, right, right. I know, I do. That's the influence problem. Okay. All right, so then it's a matter of influence. So we know the three behaviors, and now I've got to use my six styles, my six factors for influence to get people to actually do something about it. So I've got a measure, I've got two to three to focus on, and now I use my influence. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. Let me, let me give a couple other examples just of vital behaviors. Because okay. I, mean, I use the example of the three for healthy lifestyle, but I want to give, I call these no-brainers. But because mm-hmm. they're ones that we all kind of know, but we don't sort of practice. It's like um, if we wanted to reduce deaths on America's highways due to traffic crashes and accidents, we all know what we would need to do, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's drunk driving, there's wearing seatbelts, there's distracted driving, and there's the one that's almost undiscussable, which is speeding. <laughs> yeah. If we could change those few, that's what, or... <laughs> we would have a dramatic impact on deaths on the highways. But okay. notice how hard it is to get some of those to change. Right. So, David, slightly tongue-in-cheek, can I give you any major problem in the world, and you can distill this down to two or three behaviors that if we got changed, we would really we could really solve problems? This sounds powerful <laughs> in the world at the moment. Yeah, you know, um, probably not. Because a lot of the problems are what sociologists call wicked problems. Um, uh, the term wicked problems it has to do with who, the, who has the idea of what good looks like. So what I might say is a win might for you look like a lose, right? So it's, it's value complexity. It's a group of stakeholders, and they can't agree on what good looks like. And that's yeah. the case in a lot of the politics and and problems that we face today, if you can't decide what good looks like, it's pretty hard to get there. Great. I like but that. That's an interesting approach. Where everyone agrees what the goal is, I think there are 
often you can make dramatic progress if you can budge three or four really difficult behaviors. Okay. Okay, so I want to come back to this notion of measurable results. And we often say, let's have measurable, you know, we want it measure. I hear this all the time, measurable. But we often have pretty lousy measures, and we're not very creative about the measures. I have this hunch that to make this really work, it's got to be a bit unusual. Am I right about that? Well, it has to have a certain character. And the way I remember it is I'll say the measure of a measure is whether it influences behavior. (laughs) <laughs> and oftentimes the measures we have don't. And I'll use an example. Um, I live in a ski resort town, and a couple of years ago, the ski resort announced that, in fact, the whole town announced that, that no one had been killed at their ski resort that year, that ski mm-hmm. season. Now, I have neighbors who work at the ski resort, and I remember them talking about people being killed, running mm-hmm. into a tree, going off a cliff. And so I was like, this doesn't make sense. So I dug into it a little bit, and here's what I learned. This, these ski resorts, and it was three of them, didn't declare, didn't admit that a person had died at their ski resort unless they were declared dead on the property. If you started <sighs> to include people who died after a skiing accident and died within 48 hours of the ski accident, like at the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, the number went from zero to, I think it was five. Mm-hmm. Right, that's okay. a pretty big difference. Now, if you think yeah. about that, there are a couple problems with the way they're reporting results. One is they're lying to the public. They're yeah. they're telling the public that skiing is safer than it really is. But I think more important to to this discussion is they're lying to themselves and all of their employees. Right. They're not holding their feet to the fire. You need a measure that holds your feet to the fire. Okay. So that's looking. Because that's the one that's going to ease. So if somebody dies off-site, well, hey, we all we have to do is get them off property. That's it. As opposed to we have to really keep people alive for more than forty-eight hours after they leave here. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Here's here's another example that that I think a lot of your listeners will will sort of kind of remember. Older listeners will remember back in the days of the Soviet Union. Um, it, so it was collectivized work, and they had a way of measuring results in their factories. They measured results by tonnage, by the weight of whatever the good was, the manufactured good they were producing. So if you were managing a shoe factory, your bonus would be based on the tons of shoes you produced. Can you see what the problem might be? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They ended up producing the heaviest shoes known to humankind, right? (laughs) They were measuring the wrong thing. The results they were measuring weren't holding their feet to the fire in terms of quality. Mm -hmm. I think about all sorts of... Um, yeah, various corporate things that have happened and have been in the news recently, you know, that seems so scandalous to us after the fact. But often if you look at it, there's a metric in there that people were just optimizing that metric, like number of accounts that I need to sign up in a three-month period. Well, that's going to lead me to do all sorts of things to get additional accounts signed up. I get it, just like it sounds so foolish at the moment to add heavy shoes, but that was your metric. So we have to have a metric that holds our feet to the fire. Any other qualities on the metric? 
Well, it, that it, <laughs> this will sound really simple, but measure what it is you really want. Yeah, right. Let me, let me give an example of people not doing that. So we're working with a, a, a nonprofit, a micro-lending institution down in South America. And what they were measuring was how many loans they gave out and, and the percentage of, of repayment on those loans. And that's pretty important. If you're giving loans, you want those loans right. to go out. You want it to be repaid. And they had great metrics. But when we okay. asked them, what do you really want? What are you trying to really do? They said, we're trying to reduce poverty in this city. We said, okay, well, you're not measuring that. <laughs> uh, right. wh- what is poverty in, in your city? And they define poverty as anyone earning fewer than $5 a day. Mm-hmm. And at, at that point in time, that was about 40% of the population was earning under $4 a day. We said, well, okay, what could you do to increase the number earning more than $4 a day and, and taking inflation into account? And it changed their strategies pretty dramatically. They continued mm-hmm. with their micro-lending, but they had to add a, several other initiatives in order to change what they really cared about. Right, right. It strikes me as relevant for all of us, even from small businesses all the way up to massively large businesses. Okay, David, we're going to take a break at this point. With me today is David Maxfield. Um, The four books that are relevant, Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, Influencer, and Change Anything. And the basic notion is that our simple mental models of what it is, our implicit theories of how we get ourselves and other people to change, things like you need a wake-up call, you need to make sure the costs are high enough and you need to have a roadmap to follow, turn out not to work in countless examples. And instead, what we want to substitute that with is a very simple three-point model, having a measurable result where the measure is critical, is tangible, is time-limited, and it holds our feet to the fire. Two, the second part is that we have one to three vital behaviors, the behaviors that will make the most difference in driving the results that we're looking for. And then the third one is that we're going to now use six sources of influence because as David says, change turns out to be a problem of influence as opposed to anything else. So we'll be right back. When we come back, we're going to pick up this conversation and talk about the six forces of influence. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. 
To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is David Maxfield. David is a social scientist who specializes in organizational change. He says organizational change. I think he just specializes in change in everybody's lives, period. Um, His work has been translated into 28 languages and is available in 36 countries and has generated results for 300 of the Fortune 500. That's a pretty good standing point. Right, so the notion from David is that our mental model of what it means to get people to change, people include ourselves, is inadequate to do the job, that it is fundamentally a matter of influence as opposed to a matter of a roadmap to change, and that the model needs to include a measurable result that's tangible and holds our feet to the fire for what really counts. We need to have two to three vital behaviors that drive 80% of the impact on the result, and then we need to use some influence tactics. So, David, let's pick up. You have this one idea about a measure that's around workplace safety. Tell us about that one, and then I want to look at some vital behaviors. Sure. Um, So I was working with a large multinational gold mining company, and they were trying to improve workplace safety. And their measures, they're pretty proud that their, their measures showed that they'd actually reduced reportable incidents and accidents by half within about a five-year period. And so they were presenting to the board, and the board was patting themselves on the back and feeling pretty good about it, when one of the board members asked a sort of a tough question, said, now, if we've reduced our reportable injuries by half, does that mean we've also re- reduced the deaths by half? And the safety people said, well, no, actually, we haven't reduced our deaths at all. And the board had to stop and think, and they said, well, help us understand, does this mean that you're cheating on your numbers? Because how could this be? And they had to go back and do some more research, and they came back and said, it turns out, yes, we were sort of cheating. Uh, What we were doing was we had completely eliminated any of the paper cuts in accounting. None of that was happening anymore at all. And we've taken all the dangerous jobs at the mine sites globally and outsourced them to contractors. People are still dying, right? See the, see the problem? The board said, we can't sleep at night this way. This is not what we asked you to do. We want these places to be safe. Now, many times these mines, like one I was working on with them, is in the middle of Ghana, right? It's, it's yeah. Prior to the mine, it was jungle. And so when they went in there, they built the mine. They take $2 billion of gold out of there every year. And they built about 400 miles of road to service that mine. And what they did as a board was they drew a circle around those mines and said, we own every accident inside this circle. We don't care if it's a taxi cab running over a little girl. It wouldn't even have a road there for our mine. We want to own every accident that's what we want you to track is every incident within this circle. And we don't care if it's a contractor or employee or what have you. See how that mm-hmm. measure holds people's feet to the fire? Right. Right. Boy, does that change how you look at, because you have to worry about people who just live close by or wander in. I mean, it's all sorts of things you have to worry about. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, so take us then, I get I get your sense of a measure that holds people's feet to the fire, that gets at really what counts here, what you're really trying to get to do, to make happen, what the intent is in some ways. Now let's shift and talk about these vital behaviors. And you gave us a couple examples of that one, but can mm-hmm. you, you know, give me some more examples on how these work yeah. and how do we translate that measurable result into a vital behavior? So... So I gave you some examples of what I called no-brainers. It's kind of like if you, if you want to be healthier, you need to eat right and watch your weight and stop smoking, right? Or if you want to improve uh, safety on the highways, you've got to get people to stop speeding and distracted driving. I mean, it's simple stuff. I'll, another of those would be like hospital-acquired infections, you know, people mm-hmm. getting sick in the hospital. We, in mm-hmm. the U.S., we have 100,000 people die every year because they get infected in the hospital, right? And it turns mm-hmm. out the big answer is to get everybody to wash their hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it sounds pretty simple. Um, sometimes vital behaviors are not so simple. Mm-hmm. You're working on a complex phenomenon. There's no obvious sort of answer. We worked with the Carter Center, Jimmy Carter Center in Georgia, as they worked to eliminate guinea worm. Mm-hmm. How, what, how do you break the cycle of infection of guinea worm? Turns out that guinea worm is this three-foot-long parasite that used to infect 7 million people every year across sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. And due to the Carter Center's work, it is now fewer than 10 people last year were infected. It's been completely eliminated from like 35 countries across the globe. And it turns out there that you need to understand the life cycle of the guinea worm. You have to get inside and do a process flow map and say, where can I break the cycle? Many Mm -hmm. times when you're looking at driving change in an organization or in your life, you need to look at the, at, at, do a little flow chart and say, where do problems happen? Where along the path? So I'll give an example. I was working with a hospital that had a sleep clinic, and they, were, they had bad customer experience, bad patient experience at the, at the sleep clinic. And so I said, well, where does this happen? And we started to map the process. So this happened to be in the Midwest. And so imagine it's wintertime, and you're coming to the sleep clinic for a test. What time of day do you think people come to the sleep clinic for a test? Yeah, yeah, right. In the middle of the day when it's sunny outside, right? (laughs) Yeah, right. They come at night, right? So it's the middle of the winter. You come at night, and it's uh, the sleep and and the place where you park, the big parking garage is empty. You get out of your car, and you feel spooked. You're nervous. It doesn't look safe. And so one of the things they had to do was improve how do you get to the sleep clinic, People got lost, and it was night, and there was no one to ask. Once you're at the sleep clinic, you're greeted by a friendly person. Uh, A young man takes you to a back room and asks you to take off all your clothes. This is point number two where it was awkward, right? It turns Mm -hmm. out it's important that if if you're a man, that you have a man escort you, and if you're a woman, you have a woman escort you. Right, yeah. Right? I mean, this just sounds so obvious, but they hadn't realized any of it until they pretended they were patients and they walked through the process, experiencing walking in the patient's shoes, and, and then it hit them. Like, oh, my gosh, yeah, this is an awkward moment. Because prior mm-hmm. to that, they were thinking in terms of what was most convenient 
and efficient and effective for the staff rather right. than for the patients. And this is where we get trapped. Yeah. I'll give one last example here. We were working with one of the large accounting firms. Um, they were trying to figure out how to help young accountants be more successful. Because they, they search out these accountants from all over the world, really. They hire the very best coming out of accountancy programs, and yet a large number of them don't make it. And they're mm-hmm. trying to say, what, what, what are the vital behaviors that, that have a person be successful as an accountant? And, it, and as we work with them, it turned out we, we eventually discovered pretty much the vital behaviors that make you successful as an employee. <laughs> so here's the secret. Okay. Here's, here's what they are, right? Okay. It's, I'll say in brief, know your stuff, work on the right stuff, and develop a reputation for being helpful. So by know your stuff, what I mean is be at the cutting, bleeding edge of your technology of whatever it is you're doing whether it's sorting logs for a lumber mill or it's inspecting spacecraft that are going to go into, up into the, the atmosphere, keep working to be at the cutting edge of your expertise. So know your stuff. Work on the right stuff. Now, what I mean by that is uh, within any organization or any part of an organization, there's, there are always Im- strategic questions that need answers. Mm-hmm. And if you're the one who knows the answer to that strategic question, you're going to go places, right? You're going to be more successful. So find a way to contribute to the highest value add within your group. And then third is the simple one, but hard to do, develop a reputation for being helpful. So this, by reputation, I mean, it's not that I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. That's just an exchange. That's doing what's expected. To develop a reputation, you need to go above and beyond, out of your way, make sacrifices on behalf of others. Be helpful with your expertise, your time to contribute to others. Those three things are what differentiate people who are high flyers in organizations from those who get stuck and stagnate. Jeez, it strikes me that would work in almost any firm I know. Know your Pretty stuff. Much, right. So you're at the cutting edge of your expertise or of your technology. So you know what's happening out there in the world. That you work on stuff that really matters to the organization, that makes the highest value add contribution to the organization, not the stuff that can keep you busy all day. And that you have a reputation for being helpful, meaning you're willing to make sacrifices in order to help others, not I'm presuming there's some limits on that because you do have to get your work done. But at the same time, it's not just, oh, you've helped me, I'll help you. That's normal. That doesn't distinguish you. Okay? Yeah. So let me give you an example of how how easy it is to get stuck. Um, So you have a, a, a new accountant who's really strong and really wanting to get ahead, and her boss comes to her and says, you know, I wish you would volunteer to serve on this committee that's helping other young women accountants be successful here. Could you be, would you be willing to do that? And you say, sure, of course. And you get into it and it's really exciting. It's really good. And then at your next performance review, they say, um, you didn't get the same billable hours as some of the other people. And so I'm dinging you. Mm-hmm. And you say, but, but look what I did on this committee. And they say, oh, well, yeah, that's good. But 
we don't even consider that in your performance review. Mm-hmm. You were working on the wrong stuff. <laughs> it's like, right. how, do, how do you track what the right stuff is and stay on track? Mm-hmm. Even when your boss urges you to get on the wrong track. Or how do you contribute to that, have an impact on it, but not let it use too much of your time is another way to think yeah. about that one. Okay. Exactly. Yes. All right. Okay. So it strikes me, and I get the sense of having these, vi- drilling down to these vital behaviors, and that takes a lot of homework. As you said, you've got to look where the problems are. You have to walk in your customer's shoes if that's the case. You want to create a flow chart. You have to step back from your usual understanding of the situation and say, where are we really going wrong? What's really getting missed here? And then out of that, we can figure out what it is that really needs to happen. What are the behaviors that need to change in order to show the results that we're looking for? Okay. Yeah. Now, David, we've left it long enough. What about these six <laughs> influencers? Because the other stuff strikes me is just the get started and the influencers are the things that really drive change. Yeah. So... So we call this the six sources of influence, and anyone who's a smart skeptic out there, and I'm expecting all of your audience is full of smart skeptics, would say, well, why six, <laughs> and why these six? Right. So let me, let me give my sort of two-minute introduction to the six source of influence. So it starts with any time anyone's asking you to change your behavior and do something different, you are going to ask yourself two questions. Can I do it, and will it be worth it? Mm-hmm. So can I do it is ability. Do I have the ability? And will it be worth it is motivation, right? So ability mm-hmm. and motivation, that's the backbone of the model. And then the ribs of the model are the sources of our motivation and ability. And they're personal, social, and structural. So let me give some examples. Personal motivation and ability, those are the things you bring with you because of who you are, how you were raised, your background, your experience, right? So personal motivation includes things that you see as a, as a moral purpose for you, your principles, who you are, parts of your identity, your preferences, your tastes. You bring all this with you because of who you are. Your personal ability is similar. It's your knowledge, your skill, your experience, your strength, maybe even your size, right? It's, it's who you are. The mistake right. we make as individuals, and especially as leaders, is we put too much emphasis on personal motivation and personal ability, as if that's all there were. Now, there's a lovely quote from the billionaire investor Warren Buffett. His quote goes like this. If you take a leader with an excellent reputation and put him in an industry with a not-so-excellent reputation, it's the industry that will maintain its reputation. <laughs> Isn't that great? You see the there. So when you think about it, imagine you've got this leader and she's really good. She's got great motivation, she's got great ability, but now you put her in a social environment where she's got a boss and her boss says, I don't want you to do it this way. And she's mm-hmm. got colleagues who say, We won't support you if you do it that way. So that's like social motivation, her boss going against her, social ability, her peers saying they won't help her. And then down at the structural level, structural motivation, it turns out she can't get promoted doing it that way. In fact, she could get fired. And structural ability, the organization won't give her the tools or the resources she needs 
to do the right thing. So at the right. end of the day, even though she's got great motivation, great ability, because she's lacking social motivation and ability and structural motivation and ability, she's not going to be successful. All right. I get it now. So we've basically got a two-by-three matrix where the columns, if you will, are the ability, the skills, can I do it, do I know how to do it, and so on, and the motivation, if I do it, is it going to be worthwhile? Is there going to be a payoff? Is it going to give me gain? And then I have three primary ways along the rows, if you will, to look at both ability and motivation. I've got personal, social, who's around me, what are they saying, how are they saying, and it's structural. What are the reward structures and systems? So it's yeah. personal ability by and motivation, social ability and social motivation, structural ability and structural motivation. All right, I get it, David. Yep. Makes sense to me. You could say at the personal level, you've got will and skill, right? So that's motivation right. and ability. At the social level, you've got encouragement and support. So that's, again, motivation and ability at the social level. At the structural level, you've got incentives and tools. Right? So what is that okay. provided in terms of motivation and ability? Okay. And what we find, okay, okay so, so this is getting back to research, and my, I, I lead the research group at Vital Smarts, and my wife tells me I only do research on things that are painfully obvious to everybody else. <laughs> so, so here's my hypothesis, right, that I was testing, is that the more influences you bring to bear, the more likely you are to be successful. Does that sound obvious enough? Yeah. <laughs> so here's okay. what we learned. So my wife tells me I only study common sense. So what we learned in terms of commonness was when we looked at major initiatives that, that senior leaders you know, bring to bear in their organization, that only 5% of them use four or more sources of influence. So common sense is very uncommon. Only 5% wow. use them. And the ones who did use four or more were 10 times more likely to be successful. So common sense wow. turns out makes a lot of sense. <laughs> wow. 10 times more likely to succeed. Wow. Okay. All it's right. It is a big deal. It sounds like a big And it sounds simple, but sometimes simple is really the right answer here. Okay. Major initiatives, only 5% use four or more. And those that use four or more are 10 times more likely to be successful. Okay, David, we're going to take a pause here just for a quick break. With me today is David Maxfield. Um, as you can tell, a social scientist who really specializes in getting people to change organizations and people in general. When we come back, I want to take a couple of more examples of how these personal, social, and structural motivations and abilities, the six factors of influence, really affect this whole model about how you get people to change. And we'll be right back. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. 
Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Out of the Comfort Zone. To reach Dr. Wanda Wallace or her guest, call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is David Maxfield. David is the author or co-author of four major books, Crucial Conversations, Crucial Accountability, The Influencer, and Change Anything. We've been talking about David's model about how you get people to change. And the notion is I need a measure that's going to get at holding our feet to the fire. I need two to three vital behaviors that are going to really drive 80% of the results against that measure. And then I need to use more than four sources of influence. And we've just been talking about those. So David, walk us through the whole model and how it looks in an example where somebody's really, truly used it and made a difference. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll use the global gold mining company and and I'll even make it a little more specific. I'll talk about one of the one of the one of the mines where I was working. There was a mine that employed about three thousand people. It was in the middle of Ghana, but they have mines also in Nevada, Australia, South America, all over the place. Um, so the the measurable result had to do with serious injuries. So injuries where you would lose your life, lose a limb, lose an eye. We weren't interested in paper cuts. We were looking at major injuries, in, major injuries and trying to bring them down to zero. Okay. The, it, we knew that the, the primary way that people were injured was in moving motor vehicle accidents. In fact, a lot of these were like light pickup trucks uh, that okay. were hitting pedestrians or crashing into trees. Um, this is an area where the roads are not paved, where there are two monsoon seasons per year. Okay, but the, the vital behaviors, we looked at just three. We looked at Speeding, so drive at safe speeds. Distracted okay. driving. Okay. So distracted driving is the second one with cell phones and the like. And the third was fatigued driving because people okay. would try to stretch their hours. We did not include drug and alcohol testing because they were already doing that um, and people were not flunking that. Right. We, if, if we were just starting from scratch, we might include that. So now... So we know what we want people to do. Let's say we want people to stop speeding. <laughs> so why okay. are we speeding today? Why can't we just send out a memo and say, don't speed anymore? <laughs> exactly. So right. We, we started by using the six sources of influence as a diagnosis tool. So we go out, we talk to these drivers. So you, I was talking to a driver and I said, you know, why is it you think your colleagues and your peers speed? And he said, well, I don't know about the U.S., but here in Ghana, we drivers have a patron saint. I said, really? Who's your patron saint of driving? He said, we call him Mario Andretti, <laughs> the famous race car driver. Like, we all became drivers because we want to drive fast. 
We want to be in fancy trucks and drive really fast. That's part of our identity. Well, that was a challenge. Second, in terms of skill, it turns out these drivers were terrible at scheduling their stops during the day. They just, and they didn't know how to say no to their bosses. So they just add more and more stops and then they're, it would be hopeless. They'd have to speed in order to, to meet their commitments. So that's okay. personal motivation and personal ability. At the social level, social motivation, it turns out that a lot of bosses ask their drivers to speed. <laughs> okay. That's a problem, right? And in terms of support, oftentimes they didn't get access to their, their vehicles until partway through the day because maintenance would have them and forget to tell the driver that they could pick up their car or their truck. Then at the structural mm-hmm. side, it turns out incentives were going the wrong way. People would get punished or dinged if they were late or if they missed a pickup, but there was no, no reward for safe driving. Okay. And in terms of tools, um, there was no tracking of the drivers to really track who was speeding and who wasn't. It was more like just seeing, did you get an accident or not? So, okay. so it's, it's no surprise that it was a problem. So we implemented solutions in each of those six sources. So for personal motivation, we tried to emphasize and frame it around staying, staying safe for your family, staying safe for your children. We would have them do things like visit um, drivers who'd been injured and do work around their house, fix their roof, clean up their yard, so they could see just how bad these accidents really are. We would have their children draw pictures that they would put in the cab of their truck saying, Mommy, please drive safe today, right? Things to remind them of why they're doing this. That's personal motivation. At the personal ability, we gave them skills on how to, how to plan their day so they wouldn't have too many stops in a day. And we taught them how to have those crucial conversations with their dispatcher or with their boss so that they could say no without it being career limiting. <laughs> okay. At the... The social ability side, we gave, we formed them into teams of four drivers, and each driver had a safe driving score, and I'll get to that in a minute. But whoever on the team had the worst score for the day, that became the team score. So uh. now peer pressure was pushing towards safer driving rather than people bragging about how fast they drove. And okay. then in terms of social ability, we provided um, – dispatch with a way to page the drivers uh, whenever their vehicle was ready and to page their passengers to be ready so that there wasn't, they didn't cause a late pickup. Okay. At the structural okay. side, we gave team rewards for teams with good safe driving scores. So if your team got a good score, you get things like t-shirts and hats. The most favorite gifts were things that they could gift to their kids. So lots of little, little prizes they could then re-gift. Then mm-hmm. as a tool, as a tool, we installed a GPS computer in every vehicle, and this GPS computer would calculate how fast you were driving, how fast you accelerated, how fast you braked, and how fast you took corners, and would calculate a risky driving score. Now, this company had used these computers before, but the drivers had damaged them, right, <laughs> <laughs> and, and broke them because they didn't want mm-hmm. Big Brother spying on them. But when we reintroduced them, but had all these other sources along with them, they, they were accepted. Ah, so, so now we see why all the others come together. 
Yes. Yes. So notice that that one was probably pretty darned essential. Right. But by itself, they'd already tried it and it hadn't worked. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now when you combine it with the others, all of a sudden it works. Now it works right. so well that they decided to go out and approach the cab drivers, the cab owners, the owners of taxi cabs, and yeah. convince them to put these computers in their taxi cabs as well and to have the cab drivers attend the training they led on safe driving and to participate in the prizes. And so spread beyond just their own drivers into the community. Into the community. And did it work in the community? Yeah. Yes, it worked in the community and it worked for the organization. They reduced deaths and injuries by 85% in a two-year period and have maintained it since then. Now it's been about 10 years. So pretty dramatic. And it worked worldwide. Now, notice there were different strategies used in different parts of the world, but in each part of the world, they looked at those six sources. Okay. But this comes back, though, to a little bit of diagnostic work. Um, So we know that the risky driving is one of the, or speeding, whatever it is, is one of the critical Mm -hmm. factors. But you said you used the six sources of influence to go back and do a diagnostic. You know, what's missing here on the personal will and skill is missing on the social encouragement and support and so forth to see where the problems really lie. Yeah, it turns out there's another cognitive mistake that humans make, and that is when they see a cause to a problem, they assume it's the only cause, right? But it turns out that when a problem is stubborn, it's because it has multiple root causes. And so finding one root cause is almost never sufficient. You have to look at all the different root causes, and the six sources of influence is a convenient way to remind yourself to look for causes in each of those different areas. I like that idea. So, great. You're right. We do tend to assume that we found the one mistake, and let's go put a program or an action or initiative around to solve that problem, and then everything is taken care of. And we also know that that isn't how human behavior works. Okay? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Great. I love it. All right, David, we've got about two minutes before we close, literally, actually closer to a minute and a half. Is there ever a case where this model doesn't work? Well, I'm sure there are. In fact, <laughs> I can tell you, I was um, when, the, when the book first came out, our publisher flew us to New York for a photo shoot where the, the authors were to be on the cover, and my uh, luggage didn't make it. So okay. I'm filling out the little luggage tag thing, and the, the woman at the airline said, well, I hope you weren't missing anything too bad in your luggage today. And I said, well, actually, I was missing the suit I was supposed to wear for a photo shoot. And she kind of looked at me and said, a photo shoot? What's that for? And I said, a book. And she said, well, what's the name of the book? And I said, change anything. <laughs> and she said, well, almost anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> That's great. Uh, David, I, I, um, you know, when you start with a model and you say, oh, that sounds really, really simple, is when you unpack it, you start to realize some of the brilliant insights that come from a very basic model. So if I go all the way back to the very beginning, the notion is our model of what it is to get ourselves and other people to change isn't a very good one. What we do is need one that really works. And one that really works starts with a measure that is hold our feet to the fire on what really matters and then focus on the one, two, three vital behaviors that are going to really make a big difference on that measure. 
And then we want to look at the six sources of influence, the personal motivation ability, social motivation and ability, and structural motivation and ability. And it's use all of those sources of influence to drive the three, one to three vital behaviors that you're looking for. And let us know how it works, I think is what I want to say at the end of it. David, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Wanda. It's been great. Enjoyed it. And join us next week for another episode on how to get out of the comfort zone. Thank you for joining us for Out of the Comfort Zone. Tune in again for another edition with Dr. Wanda Wallace next Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.